If he would preach a great sermon, I was his assistant, I would come to him and I would say, that was an amazing sermon. That may be one of your best sermons I've ever heard you preach. And he would have this look on his face, not of joy, not of thanksgiving, but of dread. And I would say to him like, I said it was a really good sermon. And he would say things like this, I know what you're saying, and I know you think it's good, but every time somebody says to me, that was an especially good sermon, that may be one of your best sermons ever, all I can think about is, I've got to do it again. I've got to repeat it this next week. It's Friday and Sundays are coming. Every week, I have this built-in expectation. I've got to do as good or as better as last week, and so it was never, ever enough for him. When are you successful enough? When are your grades good enough? When are you skinny enough? When are you pretty enough? When are you smart enough? When are your kids good enough? When are you strong enough? When is enough money enough? Many Christians wrestle with this idea of when have I done enough for God? And that seems to be what's going on with David in this moment. And in the midst of this, God responds to him and does something so profound and so powerful that theologians say this is one of the most important passages in the entire Bible because God is establishing the Davidic covenant with his servant David and making promises to him that his kingdom and a son who will come from him, his throne will be established forever. This morning, we're gonna look at three things. David's plan, verses one through three, the Lord's response, verses four through 17, and then David's gratitude in verses 18 through 28. David's plan, the Lord's response, and then David's gratitude. First, David's plan. David had been busy, a busy man for years, killing giants, winning wars, running from King Saul, and building now Jerusalem into a capital city. And kind of in my mind, as I read about this this week, in the background of my head, I could hear the song, all I do is win, 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 no matter what, what. (laughs) Everything's going great for David. And it says in verse one that he had rest from his enemies. He had this this rest from his enemies, but instead of rest, he's feeling this enormous dread and a need to do more for God. It isn't enough. He and Nathan probably having dinner or something, and David looks out of his house, which is large, is is built of cedar. It's, of course, a mansion. He's the king of Israel. He's living in this cedar home, and he looks out the window of his house at the dinner table as he and Nathan, the pastor of, of Israel, are enjoying dinner, And he looks out the window in the backyard, he sees a tent where the presence of the Lord is. The Ark of the Covenant is in the tabernacle, it's in a tent, it's in the backyard. I live in this mansion and the Lord is permanently camping in my backyard. How can that be? And he says, I will build the Lord a house. And Nathan says to him, do it. That's a great idea. You should build the Lord a house. But then the Lord responds in verses 4 through 17, the Lord's response. And theologians say that in the midst of this response, this is so critical, that God is establishing, really, in a more ultimate way, the kingdom, or excuse me, the covenant of grace. I mentioned in our call to worship, there was a covenant of works. Obey me in the garden. Just there's this one rule. Don't eat from this tree. 
and if you will obey me, everything is good. We have peace. We have shalom. I walk with you. There's no sin in the world, and yet Adam and Eve are not able to accomplish that. They, they break the one law that God has given them. They break the covenant of works, and immediately God institutes a covenant of grace, a promise in Genesis 3. I will raise up someone from Adam or, or from Eve, a son who will crush Satan's head. That's a foreshadowing of Jesus. And then throughout the Old Testament, we tend to think of it as law, and we tend to think of it as works, and not grace, but it is all about a covenant of grace that God is unfolding to his people. He begins with Abraham, who follows God, and it says he believes in God, and that God reckons or considers his faith as righteousness. That sounds like the Apostle Paul. If anyone has faith in Christ, they are declared righteous, the justification by faith alone. There's a covenant of grace with Abraham. He believes God. He's considered righteous. And and then God makes all these enormous promises to him in, in chapters 15 through 18 of Genesis. Then later, God makes a covenant with Moses on Mount Sinai. I will be with you. And and it's kind of like, but you need to follow the law. There's this call to follow the law. But now with David, God is establishing a covenant, another covenant of grace. And look how one-sided it is as we study it. It's all all grace. Um, On the one hand, as we look at this, David's motives are good and we can understand them. It would be a strange thing to live in a mansion when the very covenant of God, or excuse me, the Ark of the Covenant is in your, literally like your backyard, and it's uncovered by a tent. Which, which one of us would feel comfortable with that? David is humble, and I love that about him. He recognizes that while he's the king of Israel, he is not the king of kings. And he sees his role as a servant to the Lord, not as the one who is the ruler and the supreme leader of all the earth. He sees himself as subservient, of course, to the Lord. And that is the way all of us should live in all of our leadership roles. You are a father, you are a mother, but you're not the father. You're a CEO, you're a boss, you're a manager, but you are not the boss. I am a pastor, but I am not the chief shepherd. On the other hand, David is showing us. So on the one hand, he's humble. I love that about him, that he's a servant. He recognizes he is not the king of kings. He's a simple king. He's a king who will die and pass away. But on the other hand, he shows us the propensity of the human heart to not believe the gospel, to not live in grace. He's he's feeling like, I must do something. The gospel is that we are saved by grace through faith in what God has done for us not on the basis of what we have done for God. And the proper response to the gospel is to live your life, friends, in deep and profound gratitude in light of what God has done for you, and, and you live in such a way that you, be, you do become a more kingdom-minded person and you become someone that cares deeply for others and, and lives a life that's for God's glory and, and for the good of other people, but that's flowing not out of a sense of, I must earn it, but instead out of great gratitude for all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We call that gospel growth around here. It's like what we hang our hat on. This is core, central to our theology, but also to our vision as a church. We believe that 
you could be the, the person most far from God. You could be 50, 60 years old, never walk with God, and be uh, one of the outliers of the statistics we just heard, that most people come to faith when they're young. Maybe you just became a follower of Jesus at age 55. The reality is, as you become a follower of Jesus and put your hope and faith in him, the Holy Spirit now resides with you, and as you learn to reflect more and more on how amazing the good news is of God and Jesus Christ to you, that can't help but change you change your motives, change your heart, change your passions, change your desires, change the way you treat your neighbor, change the way you treat your wife. But the starting point is essential. Are you being driven by it's never enough? Or are you being driven by it has all been accomplished? Let me ask that again. Are you being driven by it's never enough, it's never enough, I can never do enough, it'll never be good enough? No matter what I do, it's never enough. Are you being driven by it is done, it is finished, it is accomplished, God has done it. We so easily forget who the Lord of our story is, but the Lord will not let David forget. First, the Lord responds to David, and I love that he, he rejects David's plan. You want to build me a house? No, you're not doing that. But he doesn't reject David. In fact, he does the opposite. He, f- he responds first to David by saying, did I ever say I wanted a house? <laughs> I mean, David, since the moment I, I took Israel out of bondage of slavery in, e- in Egypt, by the way, that was me, not, not you. You weren't even alive. Nobody was thinking of you yet. And I brought them out and I had them make a tent for me. And wherever they went, I went with them. I even went into battle with them through the Ark of the Covenant. And you see the incarnational aspects of the gospel, even in the Old Testament, where the people are, God is with them. Incarnational, incarnate, God in the flesh. I don't need a house. Second, he, he says this, I want to remind you, I am the Lord of your past. I am the Lord of your story. Who took you from the pasture and, and made you a prince? was me that was it you're doing i rejected all of your brothers i anointed you king before anybody else recognized you as king verse eight in verse nine he says i have been with you and i have cut off all of your enemies from you i did that i'm the lord of your past friends so often especially in our culture today we see ourselves like we're living in a film or a movie or a story and and we see ourselves as the central character and everything sort of revolves around us and we're the primary, the primary actor in the whole story. But friends, that is not the way to live your life. The Lord is the central figure of your life. I know it's your life and, and, and if you feel it existentially, enormously, I do too, but the Lord is central. The Lord is central. He tells them, I am the Lord of your past and I will be the Lord of your future. God establishes this unconditional covenant with David and promises to bless he and his family forever. In verse 9, he says, I will make your name great. That's the same language he used with Abraham. He says in verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people. Don't worry about it. I got this. I will give you rest from your enemies, verse 11. And then the promise he then makes between 11 and 15 is so staggering that David can never get his mind around it again. It's amazing. 
In verses 11 through 15, he says this, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. You want to build a house for me? You've got it backwards. I will build a house for you. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down and you're with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will establish from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. He's talking about Solomon, of course, who built the temple, but he's talking about a king much greater than Solomon as well. Ultimately, he's pointing us to Jesus here. Verse 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. This is how amazing the good news of the gospel is. You want to do something for God. You want to earn it. You want to establish it. You want to prove yourself. And the Lord says, no, I've done it all for you. You've got it backwards. You're not in control. You're not the Lord of your story. I am. You want to build me a house? I will build you a house. And he's not talking about a literal house for David. What he's talking about is a dynasty. Sons of kingship, a throne that will be established forever, and a son who will come eventually, who, whose kingdom will have no end. Now, look at how one-sided this covenant is. He doesn't say, if you do enough for me, David, I will do this for you. He just says, I will do it. I will accomplish it. The gospel is so scandalous, friends. It's so scandalous because it's saying God has done it all for us. And I know what you're thinking in your heart. Like if that's really the way God operates with his people, if it really is all grace and it's not up to me to like earn salvation, then certainly no one would ever live for him. No one would ever do what's good. No one would ever do what's right. But what we see also in this story is what's true of the gospel is if you really understand it and have been changed by the good news of Jesus, that is to have actual faith. You can't help but be changed, and I promise you, the other approach of I will earn it, I will do it, does not change you from the inside out. Instead, it creates pride on the one hand or despair on the other. Pride. Look at how good I'm doing. Look at how much better I am than you. I'm more religious than you. I'm more obedient than you. I built a house for God. What have you done for God? or despair. Look at what I can't get done. <laughs> every time I try to change, every time I try to get better, not just from the outside, but from the inside, look at how far I have to go. Are you plagued by enough? When is it enough? When can you rest? When can you just rest? When will it be enough? Throughout every year, I have times when I'm uh, consistent in going to the gym, and I have times when I'm inconsistent, okay? I just got off vacation. Guess which season of, it's been inconsistent. It was inconsistent before vacation. <laughs> it got really inconsistent on vacation, and I'm turning. This week's been a turning point. Back to the gym, back to good eating habits. I was back at the gym this week, 
And I saw the young woman that I see almost, and when I say almost, I underline that twice, almost every single time I'm at the gym. I see the same lady, young lady. I can go in at 5.30 to 6 on a Tuesday afternoon, and she's there. I can go there in the morning, like I did on my day off this week, and walk in between like 9, 9.30, she's there. Whenever I'm there, almost certainly she's there. Now, I don't, I don't always, you know, like pay attention to her, obviously, but she's there so much, she is now a sermon illustration for me, okay? And I saw her there again, and I'm like, she's always here. And she does one thing at the gym, and one thing only, because she's over by the elliptical machine near the treadmill where I run. She's on one elliptical for a good half hour, and when she's done and she is working, she goes and gets a drink, and then she goes to another elliptical. It's basically the same machine, but it's a different one. It's just right over here. And she goes right back at it. This young lady, if I could create a cartoon bubble over her head that just described what she's wrestling with, I think you know what I'm going to say is, it is never enough. And she's very attractive, and she is in amazing shape, but it's never enough. She's on this machine over and over and over. And I'm telling you, morning, I find her there. Evening, I find her there. It is never, ever, it's never enough. But I've got good news. The Lord is enough. I probably will never have the guts to do this because she would think I'm a total weirdo. I just want to go up to her and say, when will it be enough? I mean, you are in such great shape. <laughs> and she doesn't seem to be starving herself or anything, but like, I just want to say to her, yeah, dear, dear woman, it's enough. You've done it. You're in great shape, but Jesus is enough for you. Jesus is enough, friends. He's enough for your difficult marriage. He's enough for your divorce. He's enough for your kids. He's enough for your goals and your dreams, for your grades, for your looks. He's enough for your success. He's enough for your failure. He's enough. He is the Lord of your story, and I know that's hard because a lot of your story is not all good. It includes some really hard things. And the thing about David, you know, up to this point in the story, it's been all I do is win, win, but we're about to get in just two weeks to Bathsheba, where we're going to read from Psalm 51 and see a man crushed by sin and poor choices. And the Lord had to be enough there, too. Even when things are bad, even when he made horrible decisions, even when awful things happen to him, when, like, his sons try to kill him. The Lord is enough there's an old hymn written by James Proctor, written in 1864, and the words are this, Weary, working, burdened one, why do you toil so? Cease your doing, all was done long, long, long ago. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, graciously complete. It's enough. And then we see David's gratitude. And we see why he's the man after God's own heart. In verses 18 through 29, we're not going to read all of it. He responds. David responds. The Lord comes in and says, I'm going to establish a covenant with you. You're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a dynasty through your family. And this is what David says 
Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. Imagine him going into the tent of meeting, into the tabernacle, prostrate before, prostrate before the, the Ark of the Covenant. And he says, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. This is the man after God's own heart, at his best. He has a plan. He has a vision of what he wants to do. He wants to do something amazing and great for God. He gets to be the king who creates a temple for the living God. Uh, He gets to establish Jerusalem even more. And the Lord says, no, I didn't ask for this. I will build my own house in my own time. I'm going to build you a house. And instead of saying, but I really wanted to do that, and you never let me get to do any good thing, you know, like, instead he says, I will walk in your will. I will rest in that. Now we know he doesn't stay there, just like you and me. In perfect faith, if he didn't, or if he did, we wouldn't be reading about him about Bathsheba in a few weeks. But when he's, when, he's, when he's on, when he's the man after God's own heart, this is what he does. There is God's word comes to him and then he walks in it. And that's our calling, friends, to walk by faith in God's word. You are great, O Lord, David says. There's none like you. There is no other God than you. And he hears the word of the Lord. He walks in it in thanksgiving and he basically is saying, O Lord, you are enough. There's no God like you. There's no building project like you. There's no advancement like you, no success like you, no relationship like you, no power like you. There's nobody like you. The Lord said to David about his son Solomon, I will be a father to him and he will be my son. But ultimately we know that Solomon was not the fruition of that promise. Why? How do we know that? If you've studied the Gospel of Matthew... And you turn to the very first few verses in chapter 1. The Gospel of Matthew starts with a genealogy, which is an interesting way to start an account of Jesus Christ. Hey, let me tell you about Jesus. He's the Messiah. But rather than get to that, I'm going to spend several words to tell you to go all the way back to the beginning of time, basically. And I'm going to give you a genealogy. The angel comes to Joseph, and he calls him son of David. And promises that Mary will have a son, another son of David. Why does Matthew start with the genealogy and trace his lineage from Abraham, begins with Abraham and works his way all the way to David and kind of camps there, and then from David to Jesus? Because what the Lord is showing through the gospel writer Matthew is that Jesus is the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7 that the Davidic covenant finds its, its fruition, its fulfillment, not in David, not in Solomon, not in any of his sons, but in Jesus Christ, who is the 
son of David, who is the king, who is the one upon whom the throne of which will never come to an end, that God is promising and fulfilling. Jesus is the greater son that David had not yet had, and he is the greater king, the good and faithful king. But the Lord does say to David this interesting thing, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. How can that be about Jesus? Because Jesus never committed iniquity. There was no sin in Jesus. There was no, no iniquity, no turning from God's law in Jesus Christ. And yet Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him who knew no sin, Jesus was perfect without sin, but he made him to become sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Jesus did not sin, but he was counted as sin, Isaiah 53, for us in order that we may be healed. It says in Isaiah 53 that through his stripes we will be healed. The Lord has laid the iniquities upon, of us all upon him, and by his stripes we're healed. The Lord is saying to us today, I am enough for you. That this promise I made to David found its fulfillment in Jesus. And now I've got great news for you. There's hope for the world. You don't have to be, you don't have to trace your genealogy back to David or find your genealogy in, in Abraham to be among this great tribe or this great kingdom. It's through faith, it's through grace, through Jesus Christ. Any of us can come and find our hope and our completion in this king, King Jesus, the faithful one. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what has happened to you, Jesus is enough. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And when the sin of the world was placed upon him, when you put your faith in him, that means your sin was on him. And when Jesus Christ died and he breathed his last saying, it is finished, in essence, what he's saying is, it's enough. It's been done. Your sin will never be counted against you again in Jesus Christ. It is finished. And friends, this is what changes a heart. Nothing else has changed my anger except reflecting on the gospel. Pastor, you get angry? <laughs> Men, we all get angry. Women, we all get angry, do we not? We battle anger, every one of us. Nothing quenches your lust like realizing how much God has loved you in Jesus Christ. Nothing stirs up your desire to do good, have hunger for other people, to have empathy, to care for others, to want to serve your neighbor, to see your city change, to see the kingdom of God take root in this world and that redemption become more and more applied, like reflecting, meditating on the reality that this is true and it's true for you. This is where heart change begins. Meditating on how good the gospel is. What can you do for God? Believe in the one the Lord has sent. Meditate on it. Work it out. Think through the implications. And live in light with great gratitude and gladness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you're truly enough.
in Jesus Christ. We thank you for David, our brother, who walks in your word, in your ways, and follows you when you've revealed your truth to him, that he, he can't get his mind around how good the good news is, and, and he reflects on that and becomes a changed man. Father, would that be true of us? May our anger find its solution in you, that you did not let your anger fall on us in spite of the fact that you would have been just to do so. You, you, you let your anger fall on your son. Help us to understand that and kill our anger. Help that to kill all of our wrong desires, all of our wrong motives, and change our hearts from the inside out, Father, to make us one who loves you passionately and loves our neighbors ourselves. We ask in Jesus' good name. Amen.